The following podcast is sponsored by Cosa Resources. Enjoy. Welcome to the Commodity Culture Podcast, where we interview prominent investors in the commodity space to give you the inside scoop on the emerging commodity super cycle. And now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Commodity Culture, where we break down the commodity space for both new and experienced investors. My name is Jesse Day. Before we get started, standard disclaimer, nothing here is investing advice. Do your own due diligence. And today's guest is the CEO of COSA Resources, a Canadian company focused on the exploration of its uranium properties in northern Saskatchewan. It's Mr. Keith Bodnerchuk. Great to see you. Great to see you too, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome to have you on the show. We always love talking uranium here. Before we do dive into uranium, though, I want to get started like I do with all new guests, and that is with the origin story. So how did you first discover the uranium sector? What drew you to it? And how did that eventually lead to you becoming the CEO of COSA Resources? Certainly. So so I was born and raised in Saskatchewan. Um, you know, obviously, friends growing up, they'd have family members that would work in the uranium mines in northern Saskatchewan. And so I just remember going and playing hockey, too, in like northern communities and things like that, and really seeing the change once kind of the mines, you know, were opened up in Saskatchewan and just, you know, the windfall and the quality of life that improvement in those communities when when there was like job creation and stuff like that from these uranium mines. And that, that always resonated with me. And I think fast forward to when I entered university, you know, I was naturally drawn to geology, um, enjoying science myself. Um, but I, I finished my geology degree and you basically have two options there. You can go to Calgary, sit in an office job and become an oil geologist, or you can go fly around a helicopter and become an exploration geologist. You know, and I saw the Athabasca Basin up north, obviously knowing about the job creation it did for Saskatchewan. And I chose the latter, go fly around a helicopter and become an exploration geologist. And so I, I worked for a contract for Cameco, the usual route of a lot of geologists that, that enter the space, worked at Millennium Deposit. Um, then I moved on to Denison Mines, <clears throat> pardon me, where I was there for 10 years. Uh, I joined right, at, right after the discovery of Phoenix, worked on that project for a long time, was there when the group discovered Griffin, uh, worked on J-Zone, Husky Zone, uh, ended up working on their project in Zambia uh, before they ultimately sold them off to Goviex. And then as about 2018, I decided that, you know, I wanted to kind of pivot into the business side of things. I enrolled in an MBA at UBC, um, headed out west to Vancouver and just was trying to just educate myself on the business side of things. Uh, I reconnected with Steve Blower, who's the chairman of Coastal Resources and was the former VPX of Denison. That's where I had a relationship with him. And I was going to get him to introduce me to banks, actually. I, you know, I was going to try and take that route, maybe become an investment banker over time. And he said, okay, I can do that. But first, let me introduce you to a guy named Craig Berry, obviously the CEO of ISO Energy. So I went, met Craig. They essentially hired me that day to become their corporate development manager and lead corporate development and strategy for ISO Energy. I was there for a few years. We obviously, you know, all built that company from 30 cents to about $6. Um, I left in early 2021 and moved on to uh, Inventa Capital, which is really Craig Perry's most mining company incubator. Um and I spent about a year there just trying to learn, you know, a few different industries, but also kind of uh, kind of sink my teeth into a, different, into a few different deals. And so I led Archer Exploration um, through the acquisition of Wallbridge's nickel assets. And then I helped Visa Copper acquire a consolidated wood jam recently. 
And then in the background, I kept building COSA, knowing that, you know, once I had experience, you know, in multiple commodities, you know, geology background and just had just kind of built up a bit of a business acumen, I was ready to take on this role as CEO of COSA Resources. And then obviously I joined uh, in the IPO, which was March of last year. Great, quite a resume. And a lot of viewers who are uranium investors, um, which there are a lot of who watch this show will certainly be familiar with the companies and a lot of the people you've mentioned. And I definitely do want to get to COSA and, and the team behind it later. But first, I want to cover a little bit of the macro of uranium, recent developments in the sector. Recently, we have started to see an uptick in the spot price of uranium. The sector fundamentals are appearing more bullish than ever. And yet investor sentiment, at least if you spend a lot of time on FinTwit, seems quite low. It should also be noted that, you know, the equities haven't moved according to a lot of people's expectations, given all of these incredible fundamentals. So is this just a product of our social media influenced up to the minute news cycle? And is the key here to have patience? It definitely should have patience. But I think, honestly, it's been an overall shaky market, right? And, you know, you've seen it also with gold. Gold's been above 2000 and equities aren't matching that either. So it is happening across different uh, commodities in different sectors. But you also saw what happened to uranium in February, right, where we had massive gains in the equities, but it almost got a little bit ahead of themselves. And when you're sitting in a shaky market like that, I mean, I think as an investor myself, you always tend to look at all those, uh, you know, you sometimes take an easy win, especially when the rest of the market's been shaky. You know, it's, it's kind of human nature, unfortunately, to look at those stocks that are in the green and sell those ones and for some reason hang on to the ones that are in the red. Um, even though the fundamentals might be stronger for the ones to go higher in the green. And I think, you know, you see a product that happening. Um, but as an investor myself, I, I think this is a massive opportunity. Anytime you see a bull market, it doesn't just go straight up, right? There's always a bit of a bit of a step to it too. And, you know, the important thing is you, you create your thesis and you stick to it. And when the, when the equities haven't matched, that just provides opportunity. And that's when you should be investing, right? So that, that, that's my view. I view it as an opportunity and I stick to your thesis and you'll be rewarded. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And taking a long term view as well. A lot of people try to jump in and out of the market thinking that they're smart, but they usually end up getting hurt in the end. So I think you have your thesis and you you stick to your time horizon, which is the long term, let the story unfold. So Speaking of all the bullish fundamentals currently working in uranium's favor, could you talk to us about the main catalysts and tailwinds that you currently see working in favor of nuclear energy and uranium here in 2023? Yeah, so I guess I guess the big thing would be the additional uranium funds that are coming online. Obviously, there's that Zeri Invest. I believe they're raising about $100 million. And obviously, when they start to deploy that capital, um, you should see you know that will probably cause the spot price to move on its own. But an interesting one that I've kind of been hearing about is, you know, there's obviously been the longstanding supply and demand gap. You know, utilities have been drawing down, drawing down on their on their uh, stockpiles. But what's been happening in the world now, obviously, you know, Russia, Ukraine, you hope that that comes to resolution. But it, what's happening is energy security is really becoming a thing. And you had an energy crisis in Europe. You know, and you have to see what's happening in China, where they're really working to almost get a stranglehold on Kazakhstan supply. And so what's what's the rest of the world going to do? Like, what's the Western world going to do? You don't think the utilities are going to start to try and restockpile here? Like, they're gonna, there's going to be a fear. And, it, and if that happens, I mean, the next couple of years are going to be crazy because they'll start. That's like a near-term catalyst where they start stockpiling and stockpiling. And that's, 
Yeah, let's where Jesse gets a house in the south of France if that happens, because the the price is going to go crazy for a few years here. And, you know, so that is the one kind of elephant in the room is when they're going to go back and just start uh, building up these stockpiles. And I mean, if this isn't enough catalyst for them, what's happening in the world, then I guess they'll probably never do it. Yeah, very good point. Um, You know, the uranium sector is very small. When we look at the overall market cap, it's far below even single companies, tech companies in the S&P 500. Does this mean that if we get larger inflows of capital, such as, you know, institutional investors coming into the sector, can that more readily push the prices of the uranium equities up compared to other sectors in your view? For sure. I mean, you saw what happened with Sprott Uranium Trust. That was really just one fund coming into the space and, you know, the space went bonkers. And so as you see these new funds come online, there's obviously going to be competition amongst those funds too, right? And so... And so anytime that stuff happens, it just shows you how tightly wound this this industry is, right? It doesn't take much to move the needle. And so, yeah, it's, it's very exciting. As institutional money does come in, you'll see how it can react um, quite profoundly. So I want to get your view on that institutional investment. And, and if you see that happening on the horizon, because it does feel like the stars are aligned with nuclear energy being considered green by the vast majority of countries and governments. You have very few outliers now. It's kind of funny because in the past, you know, we would look like the crazy ones for, for touting the benefits of nuclear energy. And now it's kind of the tables have turned and people who are saying that they they don't want nuclear are the ones who seem kind of crazy right now. But it seems like, you know, it also ticks the boxes of a lot of of ESG um, mandates, which has become kind of a large thing in terms of these institutional investors having to meet certain requirements. So what, what are your thoughts there? How much do you think the institutional side will play a role in the in the years ahead and how soon do you think we could see something like that occurring so i mean it could happen in the near term yeah a few reasons for that i think obviously long term as more governments get on board uh just saying you know they're pro-nuclear that de-risks it further for you know more traditional institutional funds and that that makes sense that they'll come across the line i think obviously canada adding uranium to the critical uh, mineral list already has kind of promoted it to where you know alongside copper and nickel and things like that which is where, you know, we've been always preaching that, that it should belong, but that's basically, uh, you know, told us that, yeah, the Canadian government backs us on that front. But I think the interesting thing is to what you saw, say, like General Motors investing in lithium and things like that, right? And Bill Gates with Terra Power. It's not that big of a stretch to see him all of a sudden start going after maybe development or production level assets. And so what you might see is honestly like power companies and maybe electric companies start to make these investments when they realize how critical um, the supply actually is. And so I don't know, I think it's, it's going to be a kind of amazing stretch here for uranium. And another thing too is majors. I know BHP, Rio, uh, all those guys have been buzzing around, uh, nickel and copper. But you saw recently that BHP is setting up an accelerator just for lithium and uranium. And then they're absolutely, you know, trying to hire uranium experts in Saskatchewan. And so when stuff like that happens, that's, that's just a great sign for the space, right? And whether, you know, BHP, you know, obviously it'll help along M&A fronts, you know, they might be investing at project level, asset level, which would be good for shareholders. It would be non-dilutive on your project then. And just, sorry, on your company then, because you would have capital and just, just stuff like that, right? You, when you start to see that happen, and oftentimes these majors are first movers into a lot of these spaces. And so that's a great sign for what can happen and what's going to happen here in uranium. I want to get your thoughts on the small modular reactors. Um, 
you know, we we hear news about this coming out here and there. I think Canada's making a big push to build out SMRs. How far away is this technology from being fully adopt, adopted and rolled out? Where are we in the SMR adoption curve? And is the plan to build out SMRs around the world going to reduce or increase the amount of uranium needed? Because I think there's a there's a opinion out there, maybe people haven't really looked into it, that, oh, they're going to build all these small reactors and that's going to require much less uranium. Therefore, it's bearish for the uranium sector. So could you maybe clarify that for us? So I'd say we're early early on the adoption curve. But I think, you know, everything in this industry takes a lot of time, obviously, from expiration through to development through to production takes a long, long time too. you got the you got the nuclear fuel cycle is 24 months. And so all that stuff, you know, if say if the technology does take 30 years to get there, well, a lot of supply takes at least 20, right? So it kind of it'll kind of align on that sense as the demand continues to grow. As far as, you know, it reducing the amount of uranium we need, I think optionality is always a good thing. Um, you know, utilities have budgets, governments have budgets, you know, and there is a significant amount of capital required to put in a large nuclear power plant, you know, and switching costs are a real thing. So you might have some of these utilities that are sitting on the fence saying, oh, maybe not this year, maybe not this year. But if something, an option, cheaper alternative comes in, like these small modular reactors, it might get some of these people across the line. So I think optionality is a good thing. And going one step further, I think it will make certain regions, you know, more amenable to uh, nuclear powers. Look at the prairies, right? Saskatchewan's obviously an early adapter of putting out news on small modular reactors, and I'm sure there'll be an investor. But they might not necessarily need those large nuclear reactors. Maybe three small modular reactors is a better model for them. So I think it just opens up, you know, more jurisdictions that might not require, you know, those large nuclear power plants. So I I think it's great. Optionality is great. So I think it's, I think it's very positive for the space. I want to get your thoughts as well on um, government support for the sector. You know, we touched on a little bit earlier, the Canadian government naming uranium as a critical mineral. There's also some tax incentives, I believe, um, and government programs geared towards the mining of critical minerals. Could you fill us in on what's happening there and, and how that might benefit the uranium space as well? And particularly a company like yours located in, in Canada. Yeah, certainly. I mean, obviously... You know, there's there's tax incentives that have been put in place here to really encourage exploration, you know, which is a big thing. Obviously, there's been the longstanding flow through shares and different different type of capital raises you can do, which really incentivize people to spend money and, and put that money into the ground. So that that's always been positive. I think recently, you know, we've been getting a lot of feedback um, from even the Saskatchewan government about potential tax breaks and tax incentives we can get, you know, and it's really positive. It just shows shows how much the government buys into it. And I think, you know, Saskatchewan is is quite unique in a sense. So I obviously I you know, I was in nickel and copper for a little while before COSA, you know, and we were scouring the planets for uh for assets. And it just shows how rare it is that a commodity or metal like uranium that a jurisdiction like Saskatchewan is where the best projects are in the world. You know, that's that's a huge plus. Because, you know, there is a lot of spaces that does have some lower grade uranium and things like that. And we've been offered, you know, development level assets. It's pretty difficult to, to be the first person to get a mine permitted in jurisdiction. And so for Saskatchewan to not only, you know, um, allow uranium mining, but also embrace it and have the best projects in the world, that's, that's, that's crazy. That's such a huge, huge advantage. And as hence the government, you know, offers tax incentives and stuff like that. It's just, it all just adds in layers of why it's such a great place to operate in. Yeah, jurisdiction so important, and just the the history there, the uh, 
you know, Cameco being there, the the history of uranium production, the grades of uranium in the Athabasca. I mean, it, it all does seem to to come together to make a, a really fantastic jurisdiction. Um, so why don't we shift now to COSA resources specifically? So for those unfamiliar, could you maybe uh, step back and just give us the uh, the 10,000 foot overview of the company? Sure. Like you mentioned, uh, COSA, I mean, we're listed on the CSE under the ticker COSA. We, we are a uranium exploration company. Um, you know, we have all of our assets are in the prolific Athabasca Basin in northern Saskatchewan, as you touched on there, the highest grade projects in the world. Um, it is a new story, but we're definitely not a new team. You know, we've had our fingerprints really on a lot of the success stories that have happened in the Athabasca Basin in the past 15 years at both a corporate and technical level, whether it's ISO Energy, NextGen, Denison Mines. You know, we do have, a, you know, quite the track record in the space. And so, you know, this is an opportunity for people to kind of learn about this story here and just with the team that's done it a lot before and kind of have an opportunity to enter in early on in the story. Let's uh, let's hone in on your properties specifically. If you could maybe give us some more detail on your different properties and uh, current activity at each of them at the moment. Yeah, so we, we currently own about 140,000 hectares, all 100% owned. Um, you know, I mentioned that COSA did list last year in March. But we essentially just put our heads down for about 14 months because that's what it took for us to build a land package that we were ready to tar- start telling a story about and start actively exploring, right? We obviously expanded the team and stuff since then. But really, this is, I mean, this is my first uh, investor interview with you, actually, just just basically because the story's ready and we're ready to go. Um, the assets itself, so Steve Blower is our chairman, and he was really the, the brainchild of how we set ourselves up with our projects, and the biggest thing that he was kind of preaching is that locally, these deposits are very elusive. They're difficult to find. But regionally, there is there is somewhat of a pattern to them. There's these big, long, northeastern trending corridors on the eastern side of the basin, you know, where you can map from MacArthur down to Griffin Phoenix, down to Key Lake. And Steve's like, let's, let's do our best to set ourselves along these uranium corridors. So we set ourselves up best we can for success. And an interesting thing about the east side, too, is obviously it's infrastructure rich, lots of people preach, but it's also been extensively explored. And so you start to wonder, okay, sure, we can probably fit a few more hurricanes into that area and stuff like that, but where are we going to get that next big monster? Where's the next MacArthur River going to be? And so, you know, you could head, obviously, in the next-gen fission. That was kind of a first mover into that area, and they've pretty much kind of locked up that area. But where's that next great district going to be? And so we ended up uh, acquiring this ground called Ursa over the Cable Bay Shear Zone, which is an analog to kind of that MacArthur River thing. It's really the next great trend where we think we can go after these elephant-sized deposits. Um, lots of meat left on the bone, something like that, right? You have lots of space and, you know, it could be it could become more than just a project, could become a district, and that's why we really love it. And so a good thing about Ursa too is obviously we put it together, we own 100%, but it just kind of starts checking the boxes of how we've had success in the past in exploration, right? Okay, so it's had probably a dozen drill holes drilled in it. It was mostly in the 80s and 90s. Um, modern geophysics weren't up to what it was now, and they never intersected uh, their optimal geophysics target, the conductor. And, you know, and all the mines on the east side of the basin are associated with these graphitic conductors. So that just told us, okay. So they never hit the optimal target. But what was interesting, too, is some of the holes drilled did hit weak uranium mineralization. And so that's another check mark. Okay, so it's a fertile trend. Optimal target hasn't been hit. And so basically it's just screaming to us that, yes, this just needs modern exploration. It could really set ourselves up for success. Um, you know, you see weak mineralization. That's often how 
these deposits start to show themselves, right? That's how we had success set hurricane. It was a structure in the sandstone, a little bit of elevated uranium projected down to the unconformity. We found hurricane. Griffin, you know, the guys at Griffin, it was, there was some, a bit of basement mineralization, you know, at the unconformity, it wasn't quite the size they want. They went down dip into the basement and hit Griffin. So this is often how these things start to show themselves. And so when Steve saw that, he, he was just, he was, he was excited and he said, basically, we got our project guys. Let's, let's, let's go to work. Um, moving on from Ursa, we also have uh, projects called Castor and Charcoal. So once again, these, these ones are, they have no sandstone cover. You know, they are, they are outside of the basin. So you're more so going for that basement hosted mineralization, similar to uh, a triple R or like an arrow that you're going after. Um, what's interesting about those ones is we did just do some airborne on them. And Castor especially, I think, you know, it is a trend that kind of continues on from McLean Lake off of the map. But what's interesting about it is that people always said there was no conductor. But we applied some modern geophysics and right away we found a conductor. So just it just immediately upgraded that area. And so these are all just kind of overlooked areas. We're trying to be the first mover into them where we think there's a lot of meat left on the bone and we're going after those elephant-sized deposits. We have... You know, we also have Astro and Helio, similar stories, right? Just either the geophysics was misinterpreted or it was it was too old, so it wasn't it couldn't properly identify the targets, and we just continued to go after assets like that. Very interesting. I want to dive a little bit deeper into the team because obviously we've touched on some of that already, all from very prolific past uranium companies. You mentioned ISO Energy, NextGen, Denison Mines. So could you provide some more color on the COSA team and how you're leveraging their experience in your current efforts? Sure. So uh, it starts with our chairman, Steve Blower. Um, I think he pretty much has an unmatched success story as far as discovery in the Athabasca Basin. I mentioned he was the VP of Exploration at Denison when they expanded Phoenix and discovered Griffin. He moved on to NextGen to help them with their initial resource and then he was part of the spin-out of ISO Energy. He was the VP of X of ISO Energy when they found Hurricane. Uh, and then when we sold um, assets to 92 Energy, um, Steve joined their board and was a kind of a lead technical advisor for them when they found their GMZ zone. So I think he's had, you know, in the past 15 years, you know, three pretty significant discoveries. And so he is, has pretty unmatched track record. And re- really, he, like I said, he was the brainchild of the land package you put together. And he's kind of preaching for us to go and find these elephant-sized deposits. Um, next guy would be Craig Perry, um, founder of NextGen, uh, founding CEO of ISO Energy. You know, he, him and Steve really led ISO Energy through uh, Discovery and built it from that you know, thirty cents stock to about five dollars before they ultimately moved on. And so Craig, I mean, his office is right beside mine. He's he's heavily involved with what we do at COSA, and you know, he just has a great track record of creating shareholder value and chairman of Visa Silver was chairman of Skina here in BC. So he just, you know, had track record across commodities and, you know, it's great to have him as kind of a strategic advisor for COSA. Uh, the technical team itself. So Andy Carmichael is our VP of exploration. Andy um, took over as VP of exploration for ISO energy when Steve moved on and he led, you know, he's part of the discovery team at hurricane as a senior geologist. And then as VPX, he led them through the initial resource. Um, Andy has since left ISO and joined us as our VP of exploration. Then the other one being uh, Justin Rodko. He was part of the discovery team at Hurricane also. And, you know, he's moved on and come on to be our corporate development manager. So we really have the band back together here. You know, it's the same team that discovered Hurricane and obviously Steve having success outside of that. 
And so, you know, we're, we're very excited. I mean, the team is really as good as it gets in the uranium space. And, you know, we have freedom. We're going, we're going after elephant-sized deposits. Yeah, that is very exciting. And speaking of going after elephant-sized deposits, what are the next steps? What are your plans for the remainder of 2023? Maybe you could give us a, a timeline of what your activities are, where you see things heading for the rest of 2023 and beyond as well. Yep. So uh, first thing, we'll be exploring URSA. Probably in about a month here, we'll start doing geophysics. The biggest thing for these projects is they do need modern geophysics. Um, so we will be doing that on URSA. You know, I... You know, URSA is at the top of our pile right now, but I think it's important to note that we don't really view flagships probably until we have a discovery. We don't like to, to use that term because, you know, we're going to start exploring URSA and if it's not yielding results we like, something we'll move on to something else. You know, I think you can't just get overconfident and just stick to the one project, right? When we were at ISO, it took the fifth or sixth project before we finally found Hurricane. So it's just important that we're always going to keep a pipeline of projects. So we'll do work on URSA. We'll probably do some work on Helios and other ones, just applying modern geophysics and set ourselves up um, for a drill program, uh, probably early 2024. Sounds great. Well, I'll definitely put a link in the description below for people who want to check out the COSA Resources website and stay up to date with what you guys are doing, as well as your social media profiles. Really appreciate you joining us, Keith, and uh, sharing all that information about both the uranium sector and COSA Resources. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Jesse, and I look forward to doing this again. Commodity Culture is a podcast that covers investing in commodities and natural resources. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe so you are always alerted of the latest episodes.